0: Welcome to the journey of an aesthete, a comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. Nancy Loeb. Yes. Uh, this is uh, Mitch Hampton uh, from Journey of an Aesthete podcast. Welcome to our show.
1: Thank you, ma'am very first podcast i was
0: gonna i was gonna mention that in the introduction usually (laughs) usually usually when i have guests i do a kind of try to make a brief introduction where i kind of where i praise the guests and and explain why they're on the show and and so i'm gonna do that now so this this uh among other things this is the first time uh, this guest nancy Loeb has been on any podcast as you just said correct correct so that's a first um but the major major reason why you're on our show is is because of a subject that's probably um in some respects unusual because on our show we have you know writers and and, and filmmakers and and painters um we did have a, a a practicing therapist on on another show um thomas moore who's a best-selling author but that was more about his um just general being a writer and his own, uh, interest in Carl Jung. But this is the very first time we're having a show dedicated to the art of therapy and healing. And I, mu- and I must say, this is a very important part of life because, uh, as you know, because, uh, our guest, Nancy Love is a pioneer, uh, in this field going back many decades. And, and she works with some of the most, um, Difficult of uh, situations, uh, ch- children in, in abuse and um, uh, e- eating issues, and um, just general mental health. Uh, she was a forerunner in Atlanta in issues of legal aid, and generally um, somebody who is there when people are having a really rough time and trying to improve their their life and trying to to heal. And so you you are. Uh, gifted, and you are a, a you know again a pioneer, a leader in this field, and so I thought it'd be really great to have you come on our episode, the show, and mm-hmm. usually what we do is we do what I call linear chronology, which is a fancy way of saying <clears throat> personal biography, and so I thought it'd be really interesting to to hear about how you came to work with. Um, people in this manner and helping them in a very, again, most, I would say, probably the most sensitive and profound aspects of human life in the, in the uh, interpersonal communication inside what happens in the therapy room. And I'd love to hear you talk about how you came to practice that and also how you have helped people. So welcome to our show. I hope that wasn't too long-winded. I tried to, I tried to <laughs> doing this off the cuff.
1: That was very special. Thank you. I think it all started back in fourth grade when one of my classmates told me I should be a therapist, that I was easy to talk to and that I should consider that for a career. So I think that may have been one of my first awakenings Uh, with the uh, elementary high school in Nashville. Uh, College. I'm finished at George Peabody College for teachers at Vanderbilt University. And I taught Spanish for a few years, always knowing and even then going back to school to get my master's in um, psychological services and community counseling. And from then on, so for about the last 33 years, I have had the privilege and maybe challenge to come up against and with some of the most unbelievable people. And I I just feel so grateful to have had this career and to have watched them as they grow. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how it all started was we moved to Atlanta back in 1970. And I started teaching on Bankhead Highway, which was one high school, one of the Roughest cities and streets in Atlanta,
2: right?
1: And wow, I got a lot of information and in street smarts there. Mm. Uh, my husband was with Atlanta Legal Aid, so yep. that's where the interest in the, certainly so many rights of people, whether it was civil rights, right. uh, rights of women, rights of children, came about. And we saw so much change then with the laws. We often said that, you know, the courts were good, the laws were not, and things were changing right in front of us. So my years of teaching and then becoming a therapist and certainly working cases from child abuse to murder cases Mm. to assault cases to... I moved to Atlanta and I'm having a hard time adjusting, so... Um, I often tell therapists if they're in training, you better know a lot about a lot of different things because sure. one thing leads to another.
0: Well, that's very that's a beautiful um starting point. I mean, I guess the thing that impresses me, if you don't mind me going back, because this is kind of awe-inspiring to someone like myself. Um I could, because you're talking about this as a as a as a little girl in school in a fourth grade, somebody saying you're good at talking to people in a very casual manner and then all of a sudden you're studying you're teaching spanish and you're i guess you're getting a bachelor's of arts and but then you're becoming actually becoming a psychotherapist Uh, i just uh, go back to more details about those the shifts uh, of all those um that's a lot because that seems to me a lot of a very a change you know in terms of your life and, and and certainly uh You know, legal aid is one of the most important developments of the 1970s itself. And of course, you were part of that. So, what was the first beginning where you sort of, how how does a a young um, budding therapist, how do they, how did they go about navigating that and doing that? I'm just interested in that. For
1: me, it was so interesting because when I, I started teaching at 21, and Oh, like two years later, into my classroom walks a junior at the school, and her eyes were black and blue, and she was somewhat bloody. There were some welts on her face. And back then, you went to, if you thought there was abuse, you went to the nurse. So I Mm. took her, and we went down to the nurse. And that was really my first child abuse case. As it happened, that was in probably 1973. Wow. And the police came, and they did. They took her out of her home. Mm. But... Uh, and put her in into foster care, where she just thrived. It was just a, an incredible thing to watch and she graduated and went on with her life. But that was my first real case, and to really see how to maneuver that to work with you know certainly kids that had all kinds of oh my gosh, talents and challenges. Mm-hmm. And to go from that, but I'd always wanted to go into psychology and counseling, so I had actually started graduate school some. And then I just went full force ahead, Mm -hmm. finished my my master's, and got a job at what what became uh, Emory Adventist. It was Smyrna Hospital. Mm -hmm. And they had an addiction unit. They had an eating disorder unit. And even back then, so much of addiction went back to trauma, early yeah. childhood trauma. And so that really became my area, was working with early childhood trauma and with trauma trauma victims, trauma survivors, um, some of the perpetrators sometimes, And, and that's how it really took off, and then there I worked, many survivors of incest and survivors of trauma cases, I worked individually with them, with the family, and then a few years later I went into private practice, and it's just been that way ever since
0: wow so i so I, I guess so I guess I was right to call you a pioneer in that sense because of fee- i mean i think uh at that time uh you were at the beginning of um learning about this aspect of in, um, of life inside the family outside the family, stranger abuse as well as familial violence um but I, I was well actually. Anna Freud was, even in her time, was one of the first to really well, start doing some research. Of course, yeah, I didn't mean that, but I guess from my, right. I'm just looking at this from a very narrow point of view of being 54, <laughs> year, 54 years old and thinking about the past few decades. Of course, there's never, as you know, there's never anybody totally original. Everybody has, especially Anna Freud, as you know, I, True. I'm friends <laughs> with somebody who would study with Anna Freud. Um so really a whole other. Yeah. So that's a whole other, other, other. But I, I guess the thing that fascinates me is this gift you have. Um, you know, when two people meet, they talk often right out on the street. We call that conversation. Right. But there's something special about what happens in a therapy. Almost, I would say, the sacred space of the therapy room. Um, there's, that's, that's, that's not everyday ordinary conversation, right? And so you, right. you, you trained, uh, a certain way of speaking with another human being. Uh, it seems to me to sort of make breakthroughs and to make progress in that person's life. What are your thoughts about how you develop that or how you learn? Was it, is it, uh, from the very uh, first, first, uh, clients to, um, it interests me. It interests me.
1: I think calm is the key word along with um, being open with them feeling welcome and not in any way going after too much information too quickly and and just letting them have a safe person and a safe place to talk because often these people have never had a safe person or a safe place to talk. And I often talk about one of my clients way back in the early um, survivors of incest groups. And we'll just call her Lisa. And Lisa would work all day as a server in a restaurant to pay for the group. And she would come and pay for a group and she'd come into the group. Now, all the participants in the group are survivors of incest, right? Mm. And she would come into the group and would say, if anyone speaks to me, I'm going to leave. And Mm. so, all I would say was, I'm glad you found a safe place to come. And then, after about 10 minutes, it would be fine. And everybody, and people would talk anyway. And, Mm. you know, but I could see people learning how to trust a little bit, which is more than life had given them. And what I found were these were the best and the brightest of people. They learned how to survive in situations like most of us have never experienced. But not only did they survive, they had senses of humor and they Mm -hmm. cared about other people.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And, you know, what a joy to work with this population and to see that.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And through the years, I've trained many teachers and administrators in what to do, how to recognize a child who may be being abused or was abused. And the stranger danger is so much less than the actual family and friend danger. Usually kids are harmed by people they know.
0: Yeah. That's the reason why I did mention that in my, a few few minutes ago, I I made a point to talk about inside the family and and, and people. Um, people you know unfortunately people that they're closest to are, are harming them rather than a, an someone in a dark alley stereotype of someone in the dark alley or or in what right. and and uh, but i'm just wondering you mentioning groups, so I guess that must have been one of the earlier of this type group now that's a that's one kind of experience, but then there's individual one to one therapy experience um do you mind talking about some, right. of your, some of your very first, I guess your first clients that you keep, whatever comes to your mind, your consciousness about somebody that stands out, other people, you're working with them. I guess they're coming in every uh, week and you're starting to see, I guess you might call it the breakthrough or the awakening or the, in, in light, you know, the, you know, I guess I, I'm going to use the word progress, you know, real progress, um, which is sure. possible. Um it interests me what uh your your journey as a therapist how you're starting to see these things happen and what's encouraging you and what you well, um...
1: One day I had an administrator from one of the hospitals call and he was coming in and and we'll just call him Mark
2: mm-hmm.
1: and Mark got to the parking lot and he called me and said I'm frozen I can't move and he was crying so I said, don't worry, I'll come get you. So I go out to the parking lot and get him. And all he could say was he was so relieved to get some help. So, I mean, he didn't know me. I'm out in the parking lot retrieving this guy. And we went in and he talked and he talked. And not only was it the abuse that he had suffered from his parents, but it was also the anger that he had toward others. hmm And, you know, and we can just talk about that. I'm not one to get overly dramatic or overly loud. Mm -hmm. And I think that gives them a space to really start to look at things. And I'm, I'm a firm believer that they're the boss. They need to let me know what they want to work on. And especially in the beginning, I don't push. I'm glad they're there. And, you know, and they work. I mean, we don't talk about necessarily the weather or the right. latest basketball game, but it gives them the freedom to explore their mind because they know what they know. They feel what they feel.
0: Wow. And so it's. Yeah. I'm, hold that thought. I just so there's different ways of knowing. And I guess what you what you're saying is that you start with the right approach. You have you, you say, well, I want to do just so much in the beginning so that certain things can happen later. And I guess you learned right. how to, learned how to do that. That's really interesting to me that that um you know, cause that is an art. Not everybody not everybody has that. So you, you say you say the client is the is the boss and that's what I say on my podcast a lot of times. I'll say, you know, the guest you know, I want the guests <coughs> point point your point of view and your perspective, not not mine or not right. So um.
1: Right, and then we start the journey. Often, what we know is what is the presenting issue, what they've come in for is not the main issue. Interesting, huh? And so, we all pretty much know that, yeah, the presenting problem may not be the main problem, but at least it got them there. They made a call, they made an appointment, they came in, now we do virtual or they come in. Yeah. And so, you know, our world has certainly changed. But, you know, again, there seems to be such a relief of just finding a place and a person that they can talk. And we'll explore, and I'm the first one to say, let's figure out what works. If something doesn't work, we'll throw it out. And we'll figure out roads and journeys and trips that will work and tools They you know, I'm big on toolboxes. What's in your toolbox to help you get through this job or relationship mm-hmm. or family situation? Um, of course, I'm, ex- I'm extremely big on protecting children.
0: Absolutely. <laughs> Do you? Yeah. Want to talk about mm-hmm. a, a couple of situations that come to mind where you um, really, you know, made a difference in 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 a child's life. Uh, I'm sure there are many examples where we, you know, we, again, really, as I say, the most difficult people at their at their um, hardest hit, and you you're able to make a difference at some. Oh, it's, um, it's
1: sure it it takes your breath away. Away. I had one little gal. She was eight, and she had been kidnapped to another country by her family from part of her other family. And um, she was, and she learned that it made the other family very nervous if she wouldn't eat and she kept losing weight and losing weight. And finally they were scared she wasn't going to live. So they sent her back here, which was great. Mm. And um, she was in the hospital though with horrible stomach issues. And so I was called in to consult at the children's hospital. And my theory was I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not a doctor. And, So the medical end of it was up to them, but I thought it was mainly post-traumatic stress. Mm -hmm. And we started working on that, and we did all sorts of things. And boy, she just thrived in that. And even this 8-year-old said, oh, Nancy, I wish I had met you sooner. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we worked, and she was like a little miracle. She really was. And, you know, again, she grew. And it wasn't the medical issues, which a lot of the times it is. Um, another uh, another child who had been left alone all night, and when she was four, and she picked up the phone and dialed nine one one. Oh wow! And called and called the police, and the police came, and she, I always said, how they gave her blue bubble gum that night, mm. and all I know was she did not want to stay with her her mom. She certainly did not want to stay there, mm. and. And so we were able to, you know, get the custody sent over to the father and, and she just grew and grew. And some of these I've been able to see through the years. I had another guy and we'll just, we'll just call him Tom. And Tom was an athlete and a basketball star. He was being molested by his father and he would have dreams of monsters. And he was the top-scorer basketball player on his team, except when his father was at the game, and every game he would score zero mm. if his father was there. Otherwise, he was the top-scorer. So these stories, as you see them coming into themselves and and being safe, and, you know, if they have to be taken out of a, a, a home, then they're taken out. Wow. Um, hopefully we can get things straightened out enough for children to grow. I had another case where the child had 128 open wounds on her body and it was a nightmare and she was certainly put into foster care and, um, you know, you just saw this, and you saw this child just wanting to go home, and it just broke your heart. And all I could say was, you know, we can't let you go home till it's safe. Right. And so, yeah, those are the children.
0: Well, this that last case you just mentioned. Uh, what uh, do you mind saying what eventually? Um
1: um what eventually happened was she was reunified with the family. I did not think the family was ready for that. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't sign the papers, but oh, it was oh. they did put her back in with Uh-oh. the family and with tools of who to call and what to do.
0: Yeah.
1: And so it's the judgment of many that comes into that.
0: I'm just really wondering, also too, um, and I want to get into some definitions because, again, I'm not a, I'm I'm a lay person. Um, I've read a lot of psych psychology, but I'm I'm certainly no expert. Um, and you are. I just wanted to you talk about um, you were discovering, I guess, definitions of of uh, st- uh, post traumatic stress. Um, do you mind defi- defining that and similar things for the audience or listener? Uh, what, what, what the?
1: Sure. Post-traumatic stress is some kind of trauma that crosses major lines, okay. um, and it, the trauma is something in. in in your past that keeps invading your world of today. Mm-hmm. And we talk about PTSD being a normal set of reactions to an abnormal event.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so, you know, post-trauma comes usually a month or more after the actual, first there's acute trauma, which is immediate. And then post-trauma comes a month to sometimes three months or more after the actual trauma.
2: Mm.
1: Now, with children or adults, the trauma is not just one trauma. It's not like the hurricane came through and was gone. Mm. Um, it can be ongoing. Resilience can be knocked down. Mm-hmm. And there's flashbacks and nightmares. And the flashbacks and nightmares leave the victim feeling like it's happening all over again. Mm-hmm. So those are things we look at with PTSD. Um, originally, PTSD was, we thought about it with the Vietnam vets right. or the other vets. They came back and it was originally shell shock was one of those That's words right, of saying- describing it.
0: I remember that, that George Carlin, uh, uh, late George Carlin routine, where he talked about how shell shock was a real. He liked that phrase. He thought it was um, captured something about. And I guess that was World War One, right? Going back to World War One, World
1: War Two. Right,
0: the picture uh, and everything. Uh,
1: um, and then, though, we noticed that these same traits are also going in children that were abused or adults. Domestic violence survivors, things like that. You'll see the same symptoms with them. So then the PTSD widened and became more of a diagnosis. And certainly we see it now. And uh, you know what we know is, you know, people as they work on it and develop tools and maybe some medication, depending on the situation. Right. They get better
0: that that's i mean it strikes me that what you're doing is maybe more important than physical medicine or medical me, uh, uh, you know the, the body um, because it seems to me so much is so much more sensitive and it seems to me um, am i is that, a, is that a fair i mean i'm thinking out loud again because i'm no expert but it <laughs> seems to me that, that your what you you know your job might might be in some respects more 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 important uh, th- well, it's
1: probably a, a combination because what we know is that trauma not only affects you psychologically, it'll affect you physically. Mm-hmm. Bessel Vanderkalk, who's one of the top traumatologists in the world, will talk about how the body remembers. Yes. And. And, and and it does. And then there's a lot of research on the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve goes from your brain straight down to your stomach, through your heart, through your mm-hmm. chest. And so when people get anxious or scared,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I often will say, you know, where does it go? And some people will say, oh, my gosh, my heart beats or, my, you know, my back is sweaty or my neck is sweaty or my stomach. Right. Is having a hard time, and so there's a lot of studies going on about the vagus nerve, hmm. and and so the medical team, you know, is learning more and more too about mm-hmm. how trauma affects your body.
0: Mm-hmm. Well,
1: I'm, and they well, talk I'm about a, hold, oh, the, oh,
0: a, hold that thought. I'm aware that, it, that, of course, it's all united and all works together, but I was I was basically um, thinking that. Um, you know, sometimes there are wounds that are invisible, and and maybe uh, not neglected by society, right? And, and and you come in and you say, "Hey, wait a minute, here we gotta we gotta look at this." Um, and I'm sure you've, um, but go ahead. I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but
1: um, no. Uh, a lot of my trauma survivors will say they feel invisible. Some of them will say, no matter how loud they screamed, nobody heard them. And I think you'll see that now if you watch the news of the Olympic gymnasts. Yes. And the court hearings and the Senate hearings and the House hearings, all that's going on. How they and their families let people know about the abuse and nobody did anything.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so and if they don't get attention, then you think you know other people are going to know they're not. Yeah, and so we yeah we kind of look at that um, and say okay how can people hear? Uh, some people say childhood trauma is the single most preventative issue in America. Wow, that you know what would it take to at least lessen the numbers? Yeah, and. And then, you know, we go to the core of trauma, our children or adults who feel disconnected and invisible. So your word invisible was spot on.
0: Yeah, I guess I was just thinking very simply about how our society is often superficial in a pejorative sense of the word superficial. You know, we see, see somebody whose leg is in a cast or somebody's hooked up to an IV in an ICU unit, and that's very obvious Pain, right, that's very obvious suffering. But then there's other kinds of suffering, just as bad, uh, mental, spiritual, and the kinds of things you're talking about are caused by other people—the people that are supposed to supposed to love you. You know, your 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 parent uh, or a coworker. That seems to me the most tragic, and that and that so that's why I thought that may be more invisible or not uh, to society. Mm-hmm. Uh, except of course of these hearings, which I think is very good. And do you follow that those hearings? Are you involved? I'm sure you you um, the Olympic uh, Olympic. Uh...
1: Well, I've I've been following them because it's unbelievable that we're talking well over a hundred a hundred gymnasts were molested and and it was reported. Mm. And really, nothing was done. And as upset as people can be today, you go back to, you know, where was the blockage?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they're mandated reporters, whether it's the FBI or the medical community or whomever, the therapist, and and you know, where was the block? Where did mm-hmm. it come to a roadblock? And. So you know, I think we've got to look at that. I mean, right now we're seeing people on ventilators, and they're just numbers right now. And mm-hmm. the statistics are nothing but people without their tears. And we're seeing numbers over and over again, and it doesn't seem to be filtering into people's heads sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, I, I'd, I'd imagine. Um, uh, yeah, I'd imagine over the years that you had to. You're dealing with people's, uh, again, the most sensitive aspects of people's lives, the raw material of their life, their story, their experience, their souls, really. But I'd imagine you have to intervene into public or legal aspects, right? Especially, as you said, you know, you refuse to sign papers because you said this kid should not be in that house. And so you've had to do the right Uh step up. Is that a different kind of role then the therapist role or is it all to you mixed up together or is it sort of because I imagine that gets involved in sort of the le- legal issues and, and family law and I'm wondering what your reflection or thoughts on that over the years having to navigate that.
1: Right, and that and that's, that's pretty intense. I've worked many court cases and and it is intense because usually the court cases are about children or domestic abuse. Mm-hmm. And so, and some therapists say, I'm, I won't work a court case. I refuse to. They have people sign the documents, and that's mm-hmm. until you get a subpoena. And then you better get trained pretty darn quickly. Um, you know, but that's just reality. And so, you know, again, one thing can lead to another. Mm-hmm. Um, And reports have to go in. I get sometimes my, you know, certainly my charts are subpoenaed as evidence, things like that. Mm. And, of course, confidentiality has to be respected and everything else. Sure. So it's a lot of learning. Um, I worked some of the church abuse cases.
0: Oh, wow, you mean the Catholic Church? I see. The,
1: the Catholic Church yeah, and others, others, um, some other churches mm-hmm. here where they, you know, really took in some young teenagers and waited until they were eighteen and started molesting them. And um, oh, I think my first one of those cases, and I'm still working with some of the people, was thirty something years ago. Wow. And, I mean, the damage that is done is not over with sometimes in a day or a week or a year.
2: Right.
1: It, it's not like we're working constantly on it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But, boy, those are some hard, hard cases where not only is it about people abusing people, but they're abusing God, too.
0: Yeah. Well, of course, the misusing... Um uh, people's faith and and and, and people's uh, people's credulity, you might say, you know, for for the worst of ends, the mo- the most um, you know, the most antith- antithetical to what the the stated or purported m- meaning of that faith is, or stated you know, public relations of it is. It's very um, it's very insidious. I I just wondering um. It sounds like you've done a lot of cases like that. Now, is this all in the in the geographical, in the Atlanta area, uh, or is this um, some?
1: That- I've had some that are out of town, but most of them are right here. Atlanta's a big city.
2: Yeah,
1: and uh, Yeah, most of them are, you know, just right here. I've worked a murder case. It was a murder shooting case mm. where the security guard shot a number of people. And one day I just got a call from an out-of-town mother that said, please, it had just happened. Will you take this case? Because my daughter went to another therapist who didn't know what PTSD was. They didn't know what trauma was. And she had been referred to me. And from that, uh, you know, there was another one and another one. And and so the day of the trial, I was down there as. These young people who were purely crossing the street to go to lunch mm. were testifying the guy had pled guilty and and he will, you know, he's in prison with no chance of parole, life with no chance of parole. Yeah. But how it affected these people is, yeah. um, you know, just unbelievable. So well, it, it, sometimes the,
0: you know. I'm sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say it affects the entire nation because this is a new problem like going back to the late 90s with Columbine mm-hmm. this problem of public mass shootings, cr- cr- you know, spree sort of crime sprees where you know a group of people or a person just takes a gun and just shoots in the public people and
1: right so you in the public yeah. I don't know the people
0: and you you've been so you've dealt with those those cases as well. I see because that's certain, right that's certainly a case of PTSD on on a massive scale. Um,
1: oh, long term. Yeah, long I was term. saying that um, in their office that day, it was white pants day. So all these young women had on white slacks. Mm-hmm. And a couple of them said, I'll never wear white slacks again. And it was interesting. And one of them called a number of years later to say, OK, I'm wearing my white slacks again. Oh, and, wow. so, yeah. so the, and so, yeah. And, that, and that's wow. the pervasiveness. These right. these cases are pervasive and progressive.
0: So, so, and uh, so that, when that woman contacted you, was that like a victory in her life that she was able to dress the way that she kind of wanted? Is it overcoming of that of that? Um, Would be fair to put it that way? Or when when she sure.
1: It was a victory, some of my people in my groups or individually have done speeches with me and after and I always say in the speeches that you know oh my gosh, I think Sir Isaac Newton said if i can if I can see farther, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants, and these are the giants in my life and i will do the first part of the speech and turn it over teaching people what to look for in abuse cases whatever and then i turn it over to my speakers and they take over and nobody's heard a word i've said and because this is their life and and what they say and how they say it stays in the minds of people for forever for years and years Mm. and the impact that these people have is amazing so to watch that now my clients will say that was one of the most healing things I've done is to be able to speak to people or tell my story and have people react to it and and thank me for sharing that
0: everybody needs an anchor in life you me just everybody Anchor made this whole show possible. I'm immensely grateful to them. You too can use Anchor to make your own shows and create your own vision. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Well, I mean, I was really impressed with some of the material you sent me. You and your, I believe your late husband uh, from the 70s, some material on the legal aid movement. Um did you want to talk a little bit about that that movement and that and that because uh, uh that seems like such a such a um uh, such a big thing i think in in this country and any reflections you have on that and what it what it did for people or what it meant and anything that comes to your mind uh-
1: you know these were young guys right out of law school. they had all gone to really good law schools, and they were um they were bright and they were aggressive. they didn't care who they came up against mm-hmm. and And they changed the laws. There was actually a couple of books that researched civil rights in the south, and so much of it came right back to Atlanta legal aid. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just telling somebody the other day that Jay, my husband, worked on the uh, giving kidney transplants for people on Medicaid. It wasn't approved by Medicaid,
2: yeah.
1: and. And he worked on that and he, you know, they worked on these civil rights cases and desegregation of schools and they were so active. And when he left legal aid to go into private practice, he said, I'm always going to take a case whether they can pay or not. If it's a case I want to take that I think is important. So <laughs> one time it was a pecan pie. Somebody gave him this payment. Another time there's a weather vane on my balcony that mm-hmm. that was his payment. And that was fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, whatever you want to do, that's fine with me. So, you know, know their in, hearts were.
0: Very much in the spirit of the 70s for someone to be given a, a pecan pie <laughs> uh, for legal. And that, that brings back a lot of memories for me. That's beautiful. I just
2: and, yeah,
1: their hearts were big and and they were smart, and yeah. they just made it happen and um you know it was just it was just amazing that was just the world we lived without maybe realizing how much of a difference it would make in the long run, yeah. And he truly he lived and died He's a legal aid attorney in his own right, and with that mentality, and he was had been in private practice and for many, many years, but that was his idea, and he you know he made it happen, I helped, and that was it and so, and we've stayed friends, I've stayed friends with so many of the people there oh, interesting. and and yeah. And you know, just they're you know, so important in our lives. So we were able to mm-hmm. see that happen. And he when I told him I'm going back to school again with three little kids <laughs> and all he all he said, Well, that's fine. He'll drive more carpools. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's great.
2: Wow. <laughs> so,
1: So we made that happen. And so often people will ask me, you know, clients will ask, what makes a relationship work? How does a relationship work? And I said, you let each other grow. He wanted to play tennis one more, one or two more nights a week. I said, go. I wanted to go back to school and do this. And, you know, we just made it work.
0: Wow. Well, there's, I guess, integrity and commitment to this this thing that two of you had as well as the family. It's very, um, um, it's very beautiful. Yeah. I, I sort of, I'm, I want to go back to the therapy process again, because I said there's a journey and of course in the first session, somebody might be frightened or not able to trust because violence has been done to them and, and they've been, they, they're, they're unfortunately in a family that doesn't understand how to be a family, right. To put it in a, in a more, uh, polite, right, innocuous way, and so this this human being, this soul, is in your office. Um, I want well, to go but, back to this um, process because it, it takes a, a period of time unfolding. Uh, there,
1: I, I had one client who was in her fifties, and she had been abused terribly as a child and the insurance company said how long will her therapy need to last and i said 11 years and (laughs) i said are you i said no you asked me so i told you i don't know you know how would i know then she was just getting started (laughs) did you ask me a question I answered it. I think we have to look at, uh, yeah, they do, people do come in, especially ones that have never been to therapy before, and they are nervous. And, and I'll say, I understand you are nervous. I would be, too. So, you know, you tell me what you want to start talking about, and then tell me what you don't want to talk about. Mm. And we laugh a little bit, and then it starts rolling. I have found over and over again that people are just so relieved to walk in oh. and and start working on something that has been heavy on their shoulders for so long. Mm that, you know, there is a relief and they, um, you know, they set up other, uh, you know, more appointments. One of my clients Mm. said she only works with a therapist four times and she leaves that therapist. So could she pay me her copay for 10 times and then she knew she had (laughs) come
0: and I said, also, she whatever says, works. So is that sort of a proactive incentive to make sure she goes over four, that she doesn't stop at four?
1: Right. She, she said she never happens. gets past four. And did I
0: said, okay. Did it work? Did, it work or did nope. she go over four?
1: It did. Nope. And she was still my client for years and oh, years. Okay. And so it did. But she just knew herself, which was good. She knew herself, mm-hmm. and she really wanted that. To change. Did you know that the same letters in listen are in silence? Exact same letters.
2: Hmm.
1: And I think listening is one of the hardest skills we have, um, especially here in the USA. People are not good listeners. They defend themselves and they, they want to come back with something, but just to listen. hmm and so, and I always say in graduate school, we had to take two semesters of listening skills because it is so important to help people know that they can be heard. The number one predictor of healing is community. And the community can be a group. It can be another person, it mm-hmm. can you know be a church or a synagogue, whatever. But to the, start to develop, a sense of community that's safe hmm. is one, if not the most healing part of the journey
0: mm-hmm. well i and, I certainly uh, feel that in this very episode, right that um I sort of think that that uh, that's um uh, that's certainly on topic here oh.
1: Yeah, and how, you know, how do people grow? And I think that's so important, whether it's a child. Sometimes the parents will say, the child won't talk to the parents, and the child's not going to talk to me. And I've got to tell you, I've really never had a problem with that. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, just let them in, and, and I've gotten so many thank you notes, which are just, it's so sweet through the years from families or whatever and it's just touching and it warms my heart
0: wow so and I, so i do i I'd imagine i imagine you save some of those right or you but they probably
1: oh, oh i do i have uh, a whole file of communication I know, because it's so nice to reread. Because sometimes, you, you know, I think we all need something that's positive and and good. Yeah. And, and, I mean, you work very hard in your area, and that takes a talent and an artistry that I don't even come know about. But just mm-hmm. from hearing you and learning from you.
0: Well, I just, I'm just the host, you know, I mean, my basic plan, which surprised me that you said the same thing is you're the boss, I guess, in the same way that your client is is the boss. And you said, I was struck when you said that, because that's the same approach I took in creating this podcast. Isn't that interesting? The, the, even, even down to the same language or the same, the same formulation. Um Interesting.
1: Especially with trauma, but with anything, when people are threatened, what we used to say was fight or fight. Mm -hmm. They would either leave or they would fight one or the other. But what's really there is a lot of people freeze. They can't move.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And they're stuck. And they, they get mad at themselves that they didn't either flee or fight or do something. But you'll see people who just freeze. Mm-hmm. And some people will go into a trance. Oh, yeah. And I've had that happen in the office. Oh, and in the office. Just, wow. Yeah, even they'll go into a, a traumatic trance. And they're just gone for, you know, a few seconds or a minute or something like that. And so I think, you know, when we're working with people and see people, then we don't just look for, you know, the fighting. I think only one time in 30-something years when somebody got up and left my group. Hmm. And then she called and said, why didn't you follow me out? So, Hmm. you know, you left. I was still there.
0: And then she came back.
1: And so... So that wasn't a problem, well, but I, yeah, it's interesting.
0: Well, I'd, I'd imagine in in, in a situ, situation like that, you of course said to her, "Well, those these other people here, and they wanted, so <laughs> you're not the only one." So that is a it is a group. So I'm wondering. <laughs> and so that,
1: right, and I've I've worked many many grief groups because I was a younger widow with you know children to still in school. <laughs> oh and and the grief groups are just magical in their own right there mm-hmm. and and through the years as i say many many and they want to heal and they want to have a community that maybe other people can understand them and so but one day somebody called and asked to be in the grief group and she said can i please be in the group The only trouble is my mother died, and I hated her, and I know everyone else will be in the group and will be sad for the loss, and she said, I'm not. And I said, we would be honored to have you in the group, and it was great. It was another whole dimension.
0: You know, you mentioned the three things, fight, fight which is kind of a classical macho thing, you got to fight out of the situation. Right. Flight, which is sort of like, get me out of here, and freezing. And the third mm-hmm. thing seems to me very much connected with, I guess, trauma itself, right? Freezing, that's kind of as a traumatic, seems to me a traumatic sort of response. How much of your, your work with other people is getting them to relate to themselves as a self in a wholly different way? So that they're actually lo- loving themselves and accepting what they did in the most difficult situation, rather than blaming themselves or, or, or beating up on themselves. How much of your work is involving that? That um, would you say? Huge,
2: mm-hmm. huge, but. Because-
1: they have been told often, especially if it's an intensely abusive family, that they're worthless, or that they're a fraud, or that they'll never be successful. Mm-hmm. And and they really have to start to one learn about themselves. Who are they? Are you know? Mm. Are they poetic? Are they musical? Are they? you know, a serious reader, who they are and, and how to accept themselves.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And let's watch that grow. And often I'll have them write down the negative messages that were given to them mm-hmm. and by whom. Right. And then can we give them back? Not actually, not physically give them back, but they don't belong to you. Uh- They're not yours. So whose voice? Because what happens, it becomes their own voice.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And they hear this message that says, <clears throat> you know, you're, you're worthless.
2: Mm-hmm. You have
1: no value. You're going to fail in school. And they start to believe it. If you hear something enough, you're going to believe it. Mm-hmm. And for them to become first uh, with the ability to listen and then second to know that that's not their voice. Mm-hmm. And to have it back because they're very self critical. We call it the critical self.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And usually the critical self belongs to somebody else. Right. And so, you know, how do you so give that back?
0: It's something that was taught to a person. It's not something they came up. You know, I didn't come up with this negative self image. It was in in it was um I guess uh almost in the in the manner of propaganda it was instilled in me by another person. Right. Yeah.
1: And then if it's young enough, it's imprinted in their brain.
0: Mm.
1: And trauma and negative messages, you know, can change the brain so that they say they really believe it. They're never going to make anything of themselves. Um, You know, they're not a a good person or whatever. And again, it can be the best and the brightest. Mm-hmm. And they push their way through school and pay their way. Look, my parents paid my way through undergrad. I didn't come out with any debt. I did oh, that goodness. for my kids. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, how do we encourage? And that's probably a key that I do a lot of too is the encouragement. These are wonderfully bright and accomplished people that don't think so themselves.
0: Mm. Well, it's a—it's uh, all part of, I guess your, I guess your system, for lack of a better word, is not just talking, but also things they do at, at home. You know, writing things down or, or organizing. I guess their thoughts in well, form is that—that's pa- an important part of healing. Then, and I guess is. Um, I of the- think
1: an important part of healing is for them is what they can take out of our sessions and use in their everyday life. Mm-hmm. And make movement toward healthier for them, how can they move toward healthy
2: mm-hmm. and There
1: was some important um studies that came out after nine one one and after the buildings, and the people that were actually in the buildings that did not die actually didn't have quite as much trauma as people thought as the researchers thought they would. And they said the key element was they had to move. They did not have the immediate tra- trauma because they had to go down the steps, go out of the building, right. get through the ashes, run across the street, run to the, through the bridge, over the bridge. And they said movement is so key with people's growth. And in my office, people say, "Well, I feel this way or I think this way," and I say, "Tell me what you're willing to do."
0: Oh, interesting. What
1: are you willing to do about it? That you know, I acknowledge that feelings and thoughts are are all good. You can get stuck there. Right.
0: So that's a. But so tell I me in in nine nine eleven September eleventh where flight was the best um of the three flight fight flight of freeze that was a right. f- flight of going going down those stairs that's interesting and so that
1: yeah so they had to yeah and, I mean some of them came from you know some pretty high stories and they have talked about you know coming down and then getting down and people helping them wow. um because the, there were people there helping and, you know, just so many people so sadly had died.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But no, they did. They they had to flee. And I think their inner souls told them. But no, I'm very much a behaviorist that, okay, you can have the thoughts, you can have the feelings. What are you willing to do? And that works with addiction, it works with being stuck, it works with frozen. Just tell me one little thing. Mm -hmm. Where can we start today?
0: Yeah.
1: And in a form of
0: action,
2: Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm very much a realist. Let's see. What you're willing to do, and if you don't do it, I'm not a perfectionist. Just send me a text or an email, and you know, tell me I didn't do it. I don't care. You know, I just want you getting better.
0: Mm-hmm. You know, it reminds me of a phrase I've been hearing a lot in the popular media that was attributed to the economist John Maynard Keynes. He said, "What we're able to do, we're able to pay for." Then interesting. Mm. And wow. So, that, and of course, that's considered quite radical. But I guess what what he's saying is it's a really a question of will and action, right? Because it's like the capacity is is, is first, right, and the rest will follow. Right. So it's interesting, right? That's uh,
1: right. But you got to. To me, that's important movement. Mm-hmm. It's. Just important movement. And if you're in a room where you're uncomfortable, how do you get up and leave? Mm -hmm. Um so many people will say it's so hard to, you know, go to this gathering or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so so you know, for them to know that there can be an exit plan as far as getting up and leaving or flying out or whatever, you know. Taking a plane if you're in an uncomfortable situation, Um, taking a car, getting an Uber, whatever, Mm -hmm. or Lyft, and just being able to have some movement. Because when people feel stuck, then they have trouble breathing or they get more anxious, more depressed, more scared. And children are stuck in these homes where there's abuse. I mean, they don't have the options that adults have. That's right.
0: Nancy Loeb, is there anything that comes to your mind now that you want to say that you feel needs to be said? Or uh, I know this is a we're in the time of COVID and, and climate change and all sorts of dramatic events uh, that affect people's lives uh, as much as maybe the things we've been talking about. Um, is there anything that's on your mind that you want to say? I need this to be mentioned on this episode or particular.
1: Well, I think people now are getting quite stressed. They're having, they're angry at COVID. It's, you know, just done so much to their lives, but we've still got a population of very young children who aren't allowed to be vaccinated yet. And I think we have some obviously compromised people or other people that can't be. But I think we still have to remember how do we take care of others along with ourselves. It's not just about us. How can we protect uh, these young children? And I'm just... I think that's real important. I think relationships are so important. And my definition of relationships is about communication and equality Mm. and respect Mm. and trust and safety. Those are your just major parts of a relationship. And, And, you know, to put yourself out there and you don't have to. Trust everyone day one or respect them day one, mm-hmm. but people, just like you and I talking tonight, it's so wonderful to develop something
2: mm-hmm.
1: and to let our worlds get bigger. Yeah And so I'll tell you a quick story. It was when I took my children, uh, most of my children back my seven-year-old grandson to Antarctica and it was Christmas Day. And I'm Jewish. I'm not right. Christian. I'm Jewish. But the children, there were a number of children on the trip. It was a National Geographic trip to Antarctica. Mm-hmm. And was some little boy um, brought a, a Santa Claus hat. Somebody else had a candy cane. And when the children got onto Antarctica, they built a little snowman. And it was so cute. Uh, just mm-hmm. this little snowman. It was Christmas Day. All the kids, Mm -hmm. were participating i think seven or eight kids it wasn't a lot were participating but at the end of the day the national geographic specialist said to the kids that antarctica is a sacred place and we must leave it the way we found it oh wow and so they took off the hat and they gave the kid back the candy cane and they smoothed over and they said we've got pictures I'm Santa Claus here, but we have to leave Antarctica the way we yeah. found it, and they smoothed it over. Nobody cried, nobody got upset. Mm-hmm. But I love teaching. I think mm-hmm. when we teach,
2: mm-hmm.
1: it it can reach out to people. And I, along with others, just love learning.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so there's so many. There's so much goodness with so much of the world, mm-hmm. and to see people grow and the gifts that they give me in my practice.
0: Hmm. Well, I do. I do think, if you don't mind me interjecting, I do think that we have to remember the goodness along with the horrors and, and the evil. Uh, right. You know, because human life, of course, is both. It's not either or. You know. And I think uh, I think that's a, a very. Um, all too easy, given especially given what does happen to people, or what they experience. To forget that the the more the positive thing you just mentioned in the Antarctica, in the, in the sense of um, uh, you know,
1: right. But there is evil, and there's evil within homes, and there's yeah. evil within yeah. society. And so, how, you know, what do we need to do yeah. to protect people? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and I think people have to... I worked at a child abuse case where the child was so battered and nobody turned it in. I mean, I didn't mm. get on it until it had already happened. Mm. And, and the one thing I asked the school as I met with them was, how did you not see this? Mm. And they said, you know, this child said she fell off her scooter, whatever. Mm. And, you know, no, we have to keep our eyes open and we have to protect people. And, and I think you're right. You're absolutely right. We have to see kind of both sides of
0: this. Well, yeah, in the case of that, you have to be, I guess, a, a cop and a doctor and, a, and a, you have to deal with <laughs> – you also have to deal with the school. That's probably its own challenge, right? It's. I mean, it's, it's one thing to deal with a, a household, but a school – you know, the bureaucracy, and I guess you were having to, it's a lot.
1: Well, and on that tune, I had a professional athlete, and one day, he comes in, he's wearing house shoes, because his feet won't fit, they're so swollen, he's retired at this point. His feet are swollen, they won't fit into regular shoes, he couldn't, sit into a regular seat on an airplane. This happens to some of the professional athletes because they're used to eating so many calories when they're playing and when they retire, they can't have that. So he came in and he tells me he saw his cardiologist last week and I said, and what did the cardiologist say to you? And he, And he said the cardiologist told him he's got a heart of a 16-year-old. So I said, may I call the cardiologist? He said, absolutely. So I pick up my phone and put it on speaker and called the cardiologist and said, I have this guy in my office. And what did you tell him when you examined him, please? He said, I told him if he didn't lose weight, he'd be dead within six months. Mm. And sure enough, that's exactly what had ha- what happened, and it was so sad. But then we go back to people hearing sometimes what they want to hear.
0: Yeah. Well, that's and uh, you know that's a remarkable uh, story. Um, I there's a, there's a lot there, of course, right? Um, yeah.
1: Right. And I think, you know, that's where, like you said, we kind of have to put on and you do too, put on many different hats.
2: Yeah.
1: Is what to what do we look at and and where do we go with it?
0: Well and well, well, the case of our, our public health, I mean, this is something we're experiencing while it's happening. It's not something far in the past, you know. It's not it's not reading about nineteen eighteen and the Spanish flu. We're experiencing it now and in the uh, in the moment. Oh, so right now. Yeah, and of course I'm very grateful we have this technology. It's kind of in a way is magical that you and I can talk. We don't have to endanger each other. <laughs> we can we can talk across great distances and and be safe. And so there's that, there's that. So, of course, that's... uh...
1: Right. And it's interesting. Originally, stress, Hans Selye was one of the big names in the 1930s about stress, and he called it the general adaptation syndrome. And when I tell people who tell me they're so stressed, and I'll say, well, let's figure out a way to adapt to these situations, Somehow, if we remove the word stress Mm -hmm. and put in adapt, it lets them breathe easier.
0: Of course, that's gas, right? (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) You know, that's exactly the...
0: That's that's clever.
1: (laughs) That's exactly... But, you know, it's it's things like that. You know, what do we need to change? And the world had to change or else we would have all been in our own homes and not having communication with anyone. And then, you know, we adapted to Zoom. We adapted to mm-hmm. FaceTime and to DoxyMe, Me and all the other ways of, of still getting, for me, still getting to practice for a year from home.
0: Mm. Do you mind talking a little bit about adapting to the virtual? I, but- Whole, whole, before we get to that, of course, how you and I met, uh, we had to navigate the technology. And I called you, and it didn't work. And you said, "Well, I'm using the landline, so of course you got to use the right number." And we used the cell, and then it worked. But we're all kind of we're all kind of learning about this this exotic, to me, exotic world of technology. And uh, of course, you you talk a little bit about the Zoom experience. I know people have said many things, but. Uh, just adapting to that and how that's worked for you? um.
1: It's been really interesting. Originally, we weren't sure how it was, although I have done virtual for many years because some of my people are traveling or whatever. And so it wasn't 100% new for me. Um, We had to set up the business Zoom rather than the regular Zoom because we sometimes needed to go over an hour into a two-hour session for the groups. They were going to go for an hour and a half. So, and a lot of people had a hard time with it. There were some therapists that said, no, I'm just going to see people in masks in the office. Mm -hmm. And some of us said, oh, no, you know, at the beginning when it was so contagious and so frightening that we were Mm -hmm. certainly not going to do and didn't do that. But I have found that people have worked equally as hard on the phone or with Zoom or FaceTime Mm -hmm. or some of the others, WebEx, all these that we're using. They have worked equally as hard as when they're in my office. I do like, obviously, you know, person to person. I think that uh, I just like that because that's what I'm used to. People were so ready for therapy. Mm. Men were reaching out all over the place to get help because it made it easy. They didn't have to take uh, a half day off. And the women said, I don't have to take a half day off from work. Mm-hmm. And it made it easier. And about eighty percent of my people want to stay with this technology. And as I say, their progress has been notable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Their their ability to name the issues and navigate the issues. I'm a big one on let's name it and navigate it. Mm-hmm. And you know, let's get moving on this. And so, um, you know, I think it it's just all fit into place. Mm. And I give the technology, the IT people, the schools that started and used Zoom or whatever they use and kept the kids at least somewhat engaged, if not totally engaged for the day. I mean there's there's just reward for those people that did that too. But we were able to do it, and it happened any more than you and I figuring out what the problem was tonight.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, everything worked out beautifully, and the the connection has been the connection has been clear, and and um and um again, it's 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 kind of it's kind of is kind of magical in a way. Um,
1: oh, I think it's beyond magical, and there are brilliant minds out there that have figured this out.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I really do hate saying goodbye, but this this podcast can't go on all night. Although I might want it to, because <laughs> your stories are, or your stories are quite are quite uh, well. There, there are many things. They're, they cover all the whole gamut of um, human human life and humanity. Is there anything before we go that you want to say uh, in conclusion, or that you want to um, just do want to express, or
1: well, one, my gratitude for you giving me my opportunity to do my very first podcast right. and to to encourage people to grow in a healthy way, keep growing, even with a pandemic, you know, keep growing, taking care of themselves in a healthy way. And I know pandemics can tempt many people in many different ways, mm. but... I think it's important that we meet people where they are now and will then grow.
0: Mm. Well, I want to thank I thank, uh, thank our producer for introducing us because it was Laurie Strickland oh. that Strickland that um made this possible. And I and I have to say I want to thank you for your especially your time and generosity because you've had a life busy with so many uh, job is challenging and so many is intensity to it, but I'm, I really thank you that you've been able to make the time to to be on our show. So I oh
1: think anytime, that.
0: and um, so Nancy, this has been, been really beautiful occasion, and so thank you.
1: Thank you, Mitch. I appreciate your questions and your statements, and and your intensity. And you keep doing this; you do a beautiful job of it.
0: Oh, well, thank you. I, I feel like I'm still a beginner, but uh, we're uh, we're all kind of in, in some ways beginners and experts at the same time. So, so thank you. There you go. Yeah. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I don't like goodbyes, so I'll see you soon, folks. Thank you.